where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. Okay, and for the prize, what are the seven words? Say that, I swear it's not too late. One more. Turn, turn. Yeah, that's it. Turn, and I swear it's not too late. Now, I'm not sure if that was intentional or not, but those seven words are also part of Scripture. In the Gospel of Matthew, we hear, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, turn, it's not too late. In Mark, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news, it says. Same message, it's not too late. Turn, believe it. I'm also struck by what Pete Seeger left out. Somebody said that at the end. He said, he ends with a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. But earlier in the song, it says a time for peace and a time for war, just like the scripture. But I love that at the end, he omitted the word war. And that tells me that it's worth asking, what are the conditions that make it a time for war? Is there a time for war? And what would those conditions be? If you want to give that some serious thought, just Google just war theory. It's a doctrine, a doctrine of the church. Take a look at it. See how it's evolved over time. Or just go to your own place and wonder about that. Is there a time? Koheleth, which is uh, the name of the person who wrote Ecclesiastes, translates as teacher, includes in that chapter three in the song that we just heard a long list of you know, polarities, things that feel like they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. They're not necessarily in conflict, but they're just you know, different ways to seek and to lose, to gather and to cast away to tear and to sow. Acknowledging that there is nothing new under the sun. All of these things exist and have existed for centuries, for longer than we were keeping track of time. And yesterday while I was hiking, and I admit this might have been the heat and the altitude and my own fatigue, I said, yes, these things do exist, but do they have to? Do they have to still exist? Can we turn towards peace and away from war? And what might that look like and sound like if we were to turn only toward peace and turn away from war? The work of peace or of shalom, because that last Use of the word peace is not set next to something else, so that leaves room for it being more than the absence of war. So the work of peace, or shalom, which means peace, harmony, wholeness, is demanding and hard work. And there is resistance to this kind of peace, and battles do ensue.
Five years ago, there was a movement that began in China among millennials. And if you have trouble keeping track of all the groups of people, um, millennials are between the ages of 24 and 40. So everybody's sitting over there except for Grace. So there was this movement, and the recent headline in the New York Times that brought it to my attention was, Chinese millennials are chilling. Beijing isn't happy. This young man quit his job in a factory, biked 1,300 miles to Tibet, and started working odd jobs. He called his new lifestyle lying flat. And his blog post, Lying Flat is Justice, went viral. And it became a broader statement about Chinese society for millennials who are defying the country's prosperity narrative. They're refusing to participate in this narrative. They are foregoing marriage, children, jobs, houses, and cars. I'm sure you can imagine how well that's going over in China. The ruling Communist Party has targeted the idea as a threat to stability. And I want you to hear that phrase, a threat to stability, which of course it is. How is the machine that is that culture going to succeed without the next generation? It's a threat to economic development and so much more. Imagine how much courage it takes to do that. So we have that example, and we also have the Gospels. To consider how this same scenario played out, how the peace of Rome or the stability of Rome was disturbed and threatened by the Jesus movement. How empowerment of the poor, of women, of outcasts was a threat to stability. The machine that was Rome was very threatened and in jeopardy. What's going to happen if nobody keeps this up? Meaning, these movements are a threat to the power and authority of the people in charge. But there's another aspect of power and authority, and it's the power and authority or the agency that says, let's build something that will work for everyone. We are all equal, all worthy, all beloved in God's eye. And more times than not, what happens is the narrative tries to convince us that we're all a part of something good, and we're not. Now, I intentionally started with a place very far away and a place and a, and a movement, a Jesus movement that is very old. But eventually, we have to come around and take a look at where we live now. Not everyone who's in this room or watching from another room lives in the United States, but you have connections here. So let's take a look at that. How these movements 
are met with resistance and often met with violence. This nonviolent uh, lying flat movement, what was published anyway is that the resistance from the government included a ban on selling merchandise. So the merchandise table was shut down, basically. And don't think of it as just a table. Of course, it's electronic. But what's the value of merchandise? It's a visible marker of the movement's existence and scope. You're walking in a very crowded city, and you see someone wearing the bracelet or the T-shirt or the hat, and you're like, wow, there's a lot of us. It's no different than having a rainbow flag outside the church. People drive by and say, wow, that's one. Huh. If you take away those signs or that merchandise, then how will you know? When it came to the nonviolent Jesus movement, there was resistance documented in the Gospels. That was public execution the death of the leader. That's pretty extreme. Peace will get you in trouble. But I like to think it's the good trouble that John Lewis talked about. So the millennials in China are calling into question China's prosperity narrative. And I think Koheleth, or Ecclesiastes, would say this is chasing the wind, the prosperity narrative. Remember last week we talked about Koheleth as saying, don't chase the wind, don't chase after things that don't matter, don't participate in systems that don't work for everybody. And the Jesus movement calls into question, among other things, the domination narrative that very few are going to be in charge of and dominate everybody else. Koheleth would say, this is chasing the wind as well. These narratives are empty. They mean nothing for people like me and you. And this week, I want to invite you to take a look at the narrative of American exceptionalism, that this somehow is an exceptional nation, which in some ways it is, but in some ways it is not. It's a nation that has work to do, like every nation, right? And let's look at situations of how different, um, how this narrative is called into question and the reaction to calling this narrative into question. You don't have to go far. I see some responses already of like, oh yeah, that's true. Nicole Hannah-Jones and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill were in the news very recently over a battle around her tenure. Now, if you're not familiar with the name Nicole Hannah-Jones, she's a journalist, and she received several awards for the 1619 Project, which is a body of work that expands the narrative around the formation of this country. And what she lays out is not a bedtime story. It's a story that says 
the best of intentions, if they were the best of intentions, um, fell short at the expense of black and brown people. And when it came to this battle over her tenure, she said that she fought this battle because she had a platform and she could. And she did it for all the other black and brown people in this country who don't have a platform and can't. So she felt like she had to do it, and she did. And as it turned out, she did win the battle for tenure. And it was, it was a battle. It included weeks of protests and striking and public humiliation through the media. But she goes on to say something else, which I think is really important. She says, I also get to decide what battles I continue to fight. The institution of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in this instance must reckon with their legacy of racism and injustice right to the present moment of the battle over her tenure. It's worth Googling that this week, too, and reading her full statement. But even closer to home, so, you know, North Carolina can still feel far away. Even closer to home, and this is not necessarily about black and brown people. This also has, um, you know, a rich and a poor economic aspect to it. Consider the battles for zoning changes that were needed for MICA homes. Boy, did we have the right person doing that, didn't we? And Carol Mathis Craft, Woo! Yeah, that's the truth. And then the 44-unit micro-apartments that the Kinsey's built, right here in Longmont. Another battle, but Gary Kinsey has said publicly before, how could I not fight that battle? Carol Mathis Craft fought the battle. And so it opened up even more the possibility that housing could truly be affordable and that land could be used in a different way in the city of Longmont to accommodate people with different incomes. This is good trouble. There are things that are worth fighting for. A time for peace requires that we work together for the things that matter. That we work together to bring back a song from a couple weeks ago to build the city of God. That will uphold the honor, the dignity of all people and creation. The Christian story tells us that God's spirit will succeed in this work even if it takes many lifetimes, the Spirit asks that we turn. I swear, it's not too late. 